Welcome to La Corner, La Source's digital show dedicated to the sport and entertainment industry. Every two weeks, we invite a professional to share their experience, background, and challenges. The sport industry moves fast, and having their insights is the best way to keep up to speed. Welcome to La Corner. For the last episode of the year, you can enjoy a mix of some of the best discussions we had with our guests in 2021. We covered a wide range of topics from innovation to digital strategy, content creation, entrepreneurial journeys, and much more. We will be back in 2022 with tons of new great episodes, new editorial concepts, and hope to keep giving you a reason to tune in regularly to The Corners Podcast. Good listen, happy holidays, and see you next year. Today, a very special day for me. Uh, very happy to welcome me here, Waravalkar, CEO of Lightlike, a uh, colleague of mine for over the last 10 years and friend now. Thank you for having me. Um, I suppose I'm not that good of a friend if it took me took the seventh episode for, for me to come on here. <laughs> <laughs> we were just building up the profile and now that we you know, met our standard, we're happy to have you here. My name's Kevin Hall. Um, I currently work for a sponsorship consultancy called The Value Exchange, um, but my career has generally been in media and sports sponsorship. My name is Bastien Lachny. I've been uh, I've been working in the sport industry for uh, almost 16 years now. Four years ago, I uh, I joined the EME office of the NBA, so here in London. For those that don't know me, who are listening to the podcast today, so my name is uh, Ross Tanner. Um, I'm the new business and sales director for Pixlots. Welcome everyone to our new episode of Look Corner International. Today is our pleasure to welcome Michael Narek. You're working for one company that we are helping and partnering with, Slate. My name is Tika. Uh, I work with MLSE in, uh, well, for, for those listening that don't know, MLSE is Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment uh, based in Toronto. I'm Daniel Kirshner. I am based in Santa Monica, California. I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, a company called Greenfly, uh, which I've been running for the past, uh, coming up on seven years. So my name is Aida. I am based in Copenhagen in Denmark. I am the co-founder and managing director of Noise Studio and also the co-founder of Nordic Sport Tech. Hi, I'm Sophie and I am currently based in the French Alps in the Port de Soleil in a ski resort mm. called Morzine. Yeah, my name is Joe Edwards. I've been probably in marketing for about 20 years now, I guess. I actually only just got into the sports world maybe five or six years ago. Um, and I'm, I'm currently CMO at Super League Triathlon. How many teams, leagues, and properties are publicly traded or have greater levels of accountability, right? I, I think you can count on maybe two hands the number of organizations that have public ownership. And I think that's a really interesting data point to look at because in many cases, as you know, you, when you start going down the path of, of selling into that audience of teams, leagues, and properties with very little public accountability, right, you get employees that their legacy, 
They don't think innovatively. They're not being pushed necessarily by real shareholders, right? Um, they're being propped up by operating losses that are then made up through these massive media, you know, rev shares, right? And, and so it just became okay. Like, tell me another industry where it's okay to lose 10 or $20 million on an annual basis and continue to get promoted and, and even have a job, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, that fundamentally has been a lot of teams, leagues, and properties. Not so much on the property side, but, but certainly at the team level. Teams are not necessarily profitable operationally. Where they make their money is on these national media agreements, right? And so the reality is they've been trained to, uh, you know, pay cents on the dollar for really good technology. They've been trained to have these enormous sales cycles that are absolutely, you know, they, they, they kill anybody in the startup space, right? And, and what are you chasing? Like you're chasing, you, you know, again, like, you know, something that doesn't scale. What I think in general, and we, we tell this to clients across business and, and, you know, definitely it'd be something Nike would point to and say has had a huge deal of, to do with their success is this sort of direct to consumer direct relationship building. You know, one of the, the metrics that I'll talk about with sports organizations coming, we have 5 million, we have 20 million fans, 100 million fans around the globe. And you know, okay, so what's the average revenue per fan? And, you know, for 70 million of them, they, they may not, they may invest a lot of time, but they don't, they don't actually buy. They're, they're watching, they're following on Twitter, their favorite players, all this stuff. But that energy isn't getting turned into a relationship that you can build on over time through a membership model, through something that's very data driven. And, and that part to me, you've got to you've got to get out of this place where your consumer where you've essentially rented your consumer relationships for a really high ticket, high, high price tag. It's great. But if they're watching on ESPN or Sky and you don't know, you don't know who that person is and they may be watching for 500 hours a year you're not actually directly connected to them. And I think especially when you look at a younger fan base that's coming um, that in many cases may not necessarily be watching sport in the same ways or, you know, same volume as they were before. How do you build those kind of models? But the other piece that I think is going to be increasingly important that I don't think people are talking about enough. We hear people talk about the trend of more fans follow athletes than clubs. I think you're going to have to find new ways to work with players and teams. And you're going to have to find new ways to kind of create these sort of symbiotic, mutually beneficial relationships because otherwise, you know, the players are, they, they get to own those relationships. And so if you're, you're a team and, and you know, it's, you're, you're fragmented across a lot of different places that get you a ton of exposure, but not necessarily the direct relationship. And then you're a player who's built a big audience and not just the stars of today, but the young guys coming up, they're coming in with these huge audiences already, huge engaged fan bases that I, you know, I read, I read a really great thing about it. You're, you're, you've grown, if you've grown up on, on social media, on the way, you know, following influencers, part of that is the sort of seeing the full story. It's, it's as much about the journey as it is about what happens on the field. To what extent have you moved from a union that helped mostly topics on the broadcast side of things, on the linear side of things, to one that gives more advice and strategizes around digital-driven uh, offerings? 
Yeah, that's that, that, that's quite a challenge because, as I mentioned to you earlier, we really have various type of members, and some of them are very advanced, and others are way behind. But I think first we need to, you know, to kill a misperception of the market. Some of our members are really ahead of any competitor on the digital framework. We were talking earlier about BBC. I think no one can challenge that BBC is one of the best media global digital platform um, in UK or even in the world. But we have many others. In many countries, our members' digital platform, Avod Offering or, um, or Simulcast, are leaders in their market, even at Netflix or other type of actors. So first of all, you know, we, we learn a lot from that. You know, our members have more than, you know, almost 1,500 various digital platforms. And that really helps to look at what is working, what is not. Then from there, we really need, you know, to leverage, okay, what, what is our best chance to build the strongest possible communities? And what, what is our core DNA? So again, the DNA of the EBU, and this is what we guarantee to all of our partners from the beginning, is giving to our partners the biggest possible reach of free viewing. We are, by essence, against paywall to consume sport. Now we are also realistic about the market and the need to fulfill uh, expectation of right feed and so on. So we have very strong partnership with the actors and we'll continue. But at the same time, we need to find this balance to be able to have as much possible free consumption of sports um, and developing new value streams. So I think nowadays it's all about in each and every country, how can we adapt the offering between public service media and any type of other national partner to provide content on the multi-platform schemes to the audience. I wanted to pose a little bit, or not to pose, but maybe go to another route. It's to talk a bit more on the startups. We all know everybody when we talk today of innovation or, or strategies, like, okay, but what do you do with the startups? Can you tell us your, your best predictions? What, what, what are the best ones? That's never easy to do. Uh, from, from my own feeling, but for MLFC, how, how do you partner with them? Is it on a, um, a case by case basis? Uh, do you, do you have some specific initiatives or are you looking at a specific level of maturity? How, how does it all work on your yeah. side? It, that's a great question. So I think, uh, you know, we have our Future of Sport Lab. So for anyone listening that doesn't know, uh, Future of Sport Lab is an incubator that we have launched or launched about two years ago now um, in partnership with Ryerson University in Toronto. And um, so incubator. You mentioned incubator. So very much early stage. Early stage. Yeah. So so primarily looking at kind of seed stage startups uh, for the most part. And uh, we've had two cohorts come through FSL now. Um, so a total of 11 startups, I think, uh, have come through. And what we really kind of were envisioning with that, and I think where we, we really hope to continue to take that is um, there's, there's, a ton of, there's a ton of innovation happening in sport right now. And there are so, so many companies out there to work with. And we, as MLSE, want to be able to, I mentioned our buy versus build uh, mentality. We, as MLSE, want to be working with the best in the business at um, innovating and, mm -hmm. and building new technologies. And 
we as an organization know that we're not going to be able to build everything. Like that's just not feasible. Like at a certain point you have to focus on your strengths. And so where we can, um, you know, leverage the strengths of another organization, a startup or, you know, another company to help us on our journey um, and help us kind of, you know, move towards our vision. Uh, we're, we're going to do that. And so what we had then start with FSL is a really unique opportunity for startups to come in and use MLSE as a testing ground for their products and services. Mm-hmm. So access to uh, a hugely enthusiastic fan base for fan engagement or access to, um, you know, performance data it's, on the core performance di- mm-hmm. side. And, and so a really unique opportunity to partner um, for us to, to learn from, from them and to get access to the best in the business, uh, new products, new services, and for them to be able to hone their, their products, um, their product market fit and all that sort of stuff to, to help them to grow uh, their startup as well. On, on your time at WEF, I mean, something like the WEF Innovation Hub as well. I mean, there's always uh, working closely on the event to say where you have both marketing and operations. You always have this kind of, you know, the, the marketing guys that, that want to, to implement or that working closely with the broadcast partners, with the sponsors, uh, doing the different kind of activations. And then you have the operation sites that deliver the events. I mean, make that happen uh, with come-ups like commercial operations. Uh, what, what's your take on, on that in terms of aligning both marketing and operations within, within such a big organization or within any kind of sports organization? I think that's, uh, that to me is the secret sauce to a successful, uh, uh, a successful project or a successful company because the marketing guys have a, um, an intuition to innovate and to see what is the next big thing out there. What's, uh, you know, how can they work in cycles? So they, they come up with, uh, with a plan, a promotional marketing strategy, whatnot, and, um, and has fresh look, fresh feel, uh, whatever, you know, degree that the, their new plan has based on what the previous one was, there's this almost um, instinct that if you are somebody who is paid to come up with good ideas and to come up with uh, trying new things and not rely on the status quo, and then you have on the other side of the fence, the operation guys that prefer to keep things, you know, let's keep things as uh, as we know it. So they like the security of uh of doing things uh, that they do know because they they know by implementing it in the past, they will most likely succeed at implementing it in the future. So there's a natural divide at the start of any cycle or any project where um, uh, marketing guys are trying to innovate and operational guys are trying to keep it uh, uh, where it's implementable. And I think if marketing marketing and operations... uh, if the marketing staff is a bit uh, taking into account what is the operational process to implement their ideas and the operational staff can also um, take marketing's uh, instinct to innovate and to also question how they do their processes, um, I think that's if, if that marriage happens, that is uh, absolutely... Uh, uh, a huge step to making any project successful. 
sports has always been a passion. I I grew up playing sports, competing myself. I uh, watch sports all the time. Um, and, you know, I did take a particular interest into the business of sports. So even in, back in 2006 and seven, I would I would spend time on on trading on 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 NBA and NFL trades. I would um, try to learn more about the you know trade negotiations, collective bargaining agreements um, of the NBA. So I, there was always an interest, but I don't think I ever really thought about wanting to work in sports per se. The only opportunity that I got when I was in banking was there was a uh, real estate developer that was trying to get financing for a, to build out a Formula One racetrack in New York, New Jersey. And that probably was the one project that I was the most excited about. And even my colleagues all around me knew how much of a sports fan I was. And especially Formula One, Schumacher was retiring, not retiring all of while I was in banking. And so they put me, they staffed me on that project. So that was probably my first um, foray into the business of sports, you know, yeah. project financing, et cetera. But yeah, I mean, after that, I, I think uh, I got into, I specifically got into sports because one of my... Uh, you know, banking friends and, um, and, 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 you know, we've stayed friends since then. Charles Lorenzo, um, had invested in UFoot. Uh, he was the co-founder and an early investor, largest investor in the company called UFoot. Um, and so when I was leaving banking and I was, uh, I was visiting him in London in 2012 during the Olympics, he started basically talking to me about UFoot and suggested, why don't, why don't I think about, um, coming on and helping with the global expansion? So that's really how I got into yeah. sports. What do you think is going to be key in the five next years in the sports industry? Where do you where do you see a shift potentially, and what do you think is going to be fundamentally different in the upcoming five years? Um, so, I, I guess if I, I try and say that in a sort of micro macro level, I mean from a, a micro perspective, I get we've talked about it a lot. Like it's going to be new data, new new ways of collecting data. Um, there's there's going to be new product opportunities off the back of that new stories um i guess i guess on a macro level again we've touched on it you know the rights holders and the influence that a rights holder can affect you know that that proactivity in this in this category of sports data um i think you know for, for 20 years now there's been many and various different rights strategies or strategies by rights holders and sporting federations in terms of how to engage with the opportunity that sports data provides. Sometimes it's been explicitly commercial, sometimes being more on a production level or, or you know, um, an integrity level. So I think, um, I think the growing, I'm not going to say necessarily the growing influence of, of sporting federations, but the, the, the growing interest, um, it's there now, it's been peaked but I don't think necessarily, um, certainly across across um, many sports, that there's a real maturity to how that engagement is between commercial enterprise and, 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 and rights holder. There's, there's there's some legal challenges along the way for, for everyone. Um, I, I won't bore people with that too much, but, you know, ownership of data, and, and I don't necessarily just mean ownership of data that's captured now, I mean ownership of player information it's well understood that that's that's a, a hurdle but it's easy to i mentioned hurdle you know barriers that might get in the way to to um to make people's lives difficult in the in the near term they will be resolved you know those hurdles will be you know people will get over them and um and, and i do think that as i said that that will um that will be a big part of the next few years actually um as as as, as this whole space matures even more 
let's start with uh, maybe a, a, a little bit of history on uh, on, uh, on on the office. Uh, uh, the first thing to know, I, I don't know if you, you probably know Sam, but the the the, the office was in Paris initially. Um, I I think. If I'm not wrong, I didn't double check that, but I think that it was the first international office of the NBA in Paris uh, in the late 90s. Um, and it was really just, uh, you know, uh, 10, 12 people uh, that, that, that were there. So it was, uh, um, it was not the same as today where we are almost 70 people, uh, you know, 60 people in, um, in, um, in London and actually 10 in a smaller office in, in Madrid. Um, and we moved to to London, I think, 15 years ago. Um, and now we have all the function represented, uh, you know, media distribution, licensing, fan engagement, events, basketball operation, and all the more classical, you know, support function like HR, finance. Um, and I think that our previous commissioner, David Stern, that 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 I know you you knew, um, uh, really had. A vision that there was, and and God, he was right. Uh, that there was great potential for development internationally for the NBA. Um, and and now today we have we have twelve offices across the world. So this is something we're we're replicating everywhere. Uh, and why Europe? I think it's you know Europe is important to the NBA at, at many levels. Uh, but I think the most important two things probably are. Um, what I will call, you know, talents, grassroots, uh, you know, like the players themselves and the game itself. And, and then there's a business aspect. And, and I think you need to have resources in the region to nurture both of these aspects. So I, as you can imagine, I won't share the revenue numbers, uh, but we have very healthy and, and, and you know, and, and growing business in the region. Um and about the game itself, at the start of the season, just for reference, we had uh, more than 60 European players in the league, which is by far the biggest regional contingent outside of American players. And we had you know, six European players that were all-stars like, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 10 European players that was selected at the last draft. So these are numbers that, you know, speaks for themselves in terms of the importance of the region from yeah. even just for like a game perspective. And it's a, it's a virtuous circle uh, in the sense that, you know, the more players are going to have, the more local interest is going to generate, the more business and the more we're going to invest in the region and, and so on. Do you think like people outside of sports have a better appetite and understanding of digital and technology? Or do you feel like it's relatively similar to inside of sports? That's a really good question. You know, I think there's 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 a mix in both. You know, some people in in sports are very digitally savvy, very forward thinking, uh, and and really driving things forward in really exciting ways. Um, and certainly outside of sports, when it comes to brands and things like that, you see that as well. And then you see people who are, you know, not as creative, not as digitally focused, are trying to hold on to old ways of doing things and and unwilling to shake it up and i think you see that you know across across all industries so it's hard for me to kind of it's hard for me to generalize yeah I, there, there, there are good individuals in each industry and there are bad individuals i guess in each industry yeah i don't know if i, I don't know if the reason we're good early adopters, there are early adopters and then there are you know people who are not early adopters and and i think that um i think the, the sports industry what's interesting is that people will often 
Um, you know, often people within the sports industry will talk about how the sports industry sort of, you know, needs to move faster and is not kind of with it enough and stuff like that. And you hear that kind of rhetoric a lot, but I, I think in many ways it's the opposite. Sports industry things pushed a lot of things forward. I mean, it's, you know, the, you know, the, the foundational streaming technology, you know, in the U.S. was built by ML BAM, you know, in order to do MLB games. Now it's part of Disney and it's doing Disney Plus, you know. So, I mean, you know, often these things are, I, I think sports has really propelled a lot of technology forward in, in really exciting ways. Um, and, I, and I think in some ways, the way that you'll hear people in the industry, you know, kind of be hard on themselves about it, I think is one of the reasons. Like they always feel like they need to do better and need to move faster. And I think that's that's really healthy. Um, you know, obviously it, it's difficult because so much of the revenue is still coming from traditional means. And so, you know, those are going to always kind of, you know, prevail in yeah. people's thinking, but, yeah. but I think that's actually a very, very good example, right? Because MLBAM is now, you know, a technology that is used, that is Disney plus ultimately. Yeah. And that has hundred million subscribers in the world on their yeah. platform and achieving that technology techn technologically is for anybody who worked in the OTT space is just incredible. And that right? was built by a professional sports league, yeah. actually by a league, you know, to, to, in order to to um, advance its own interests in, in being able to, to stream games. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so I think it's, um, yeah, so I think it's, you know, there's there's a lot of creativity. There's a lot of forward thinking, um, you know, but there, there, you know, there's a lot of resistance as well. But I think that's just true everywhere. What are the main challenge for uh, for a Nordic startup? Because when here in France, like when we are like seeing like the market, uh, I think like uh, it's quite close. Uh, so Nordic startup are working like closely with other Nordic uh, organization. What are the main challenge for 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 this startup in terms of uh, expansion all around the world, or maybe another topic? I don't know. Yeah, I think. Um... We're like super jealous of you guys in France. We feel you have everything as sport tech. You're like one of the biggest sport tech uh, like countries in Europe. Uh, we we <laughs> have a good ecosystem, I guess. Yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah. about that. But it's always like, you know, how to, to, to learn more about like other ecosystem in another country yeah. with another culture, you know. I think what's interesting with Nordic countries is like we're extremely nationalistic uh, in the sense that we tend to like to work with other companies in the same country. Mm. Um, so a lot of and a lot of the um, startups and entrepreneurs here have a focus on like national expansion rather than international expansion uh, or international or national growth. Um, so that's one challenge. Like, how do we get people to think more like internationally? And um, in the Nordic countries, there's um, it's there's not as many investors, VCs, mm. and funding opportunities. It's a more of like a risk-averse society. So we don't see a lot of like individuals um, investing in startups. So it's very hard compared to like the California scene or London scene or Spanish or French. It's very hard to get investments. And if you do, you get very little investments. And they often want to see a lot of uh, like upfront coding before um, they get mm. investments. So it's hard to grow. It's hard to get people to help you to grow. Um, it's, it's a very slow tech scene. What is the impact of brands on sports organizations and to which extent that matters today? I think they've had a huge impact and it, mass it, it matters hugely, <laughs> is the short answer. <laughs> we have a lot of technological or big platforms brands coming and say, we have these, these products or we have these KPIs in terms of data. How can we use sports properties to achieve those or, or not? 
not personally not over the not over the clients that we've been dealing with over the last mm-hmm. few months i'd say um but i know it sort of going back to the original question i th- i think brands have forced rights owners to move quicker and develop things in data that they probably wouldn't have done unless they'd been under pressure to get those deals done um and covid has only accelerated that because Okay. fan data and fans not being in the stadium has meant they've had to rely on other streams of revenue. Um, I think it's also the challenge for rights owners is who can is investing the right amount of money and resource into data because someone like a UEFA or the bigger football clubs have those resources, whereas smaller ones don't necessarily have it and, and understand it well enough or ha- so that's that's the key thing yeah. I think for me. So certainly at UEFA they had a da- sort of data strategy and it was crucial in terms of delivering partners such as Booking.com and Expedia and the, these which were just centred on data um, and wouldn't just wouldn't have been done if if there wasn't a wasn't a data um, proper strategy. data. Yeah. Okay, I, I was about to ask you: Do you have concrete examples? So no, of course. I, I think booking is one of the best examples. Um, without going into anything too confidential, their importance to UEFA was around travel and accommodation, and clearly, around the Euros, you have millions of people trying to access tickets. So not just the actual ticket buyers, but millions who are trying to access it. And that presents a huge opportunity for booking to target them with hotel and travel solutions. Um, so it's, it's a perfect way for them to target those fans. For us in, in content creation is we are moving more into the cloud. All of our media is stored in the cloud, which if you asked me two years ago, I would say, oh, I don't want to do that. It would be very difficult to access. But we have partnered with uh, different uh, service providers, one of them being Oracle, and that's where we store all of our footage that really allow us to create content faster because there's no processing time, which is just mind-blowing. Um, but also to hold large amount of data uh, that we don't have to put somewhere physically. Uh, and I think also that something that is incredible for us on the content creation is we normally have around 10 people on the ground filming content for us. That content then gets sent to our our team in London and all of the features that you see on the broadcast and on digital were sent over the internet and created either on the same day or on the next day ready for broadcast. That So you have full remote workflow. You have 10 people on site sending the, the, the video across to your London IBC and then from there you redistribute, put the graphics and deliver the content to all your partners. We create, we use, we get all the raw and we edit all of that. And you know, by getting the raw, that means that you need still time to edit, right? So it's not just the fact that that we can get a file sent to us; is we getting raw media sent to us at a very very quick speed. And then that still allows us to our creative team to sit down and say, what is the best story? How do we tell the story? And then output that to the world. So, so that innovation for me is that something that is a uh, is that you don't see that clearly because I think we are all used to watching sport on TV and seeing great content, but the but the majority of those features that you see in in other sports they are created on the ground while they're there, 
for us, all of them are created remotely and also goes into our broadcast. All of the, the camera feeds that we get in, which is 18 camera feeds, all get fed directly back into London. And from there, we cut the show live. So all the onboards of the team, so every team has an onboard. The, then we have a helicopter that is filming the, the field of play. And then we have two boats that are following the, the action closely. All of that is sent back to London in real time. And the director is sitting down, watching all the feeds and cutting a show live. I think your, your live, your long form live rights will always be your most premium. Mm-hmm. What's changing is what platforms and what the experience is around that long form live content, right? Historically, that was your cable provider, your um, legacy over the air network, those kind of things. More and more as we're having conversations, you know, over the last several years, it, it's just as much about streaming as it is a, about, you know, cable distribution or satellite distribution. And I think for for the future, you'll still want cable and satellite distribution. We're, I don't think we're we're ready to say, hey, we'll just go purely digital. But certainly, there's a much broader lens that we're looking through in terms of, you know, how do we all consume media and what are the the right experiences around that. What's also really interesting is we're starting to see interactivity come into a lot more of the conversation, right? The first phase of streaming was you kind of took what was on TV, you ran it through an encoder, and then yeah. you just delivered it via some sort of digital pipe. Now, you know, Twitch has really been at the forefront of this, but there, there are many other platforms working on it. There are people building all sorts of interactive experiences. Um, and we're spending a lot of time, for example, thinking about interactive sports betting experiences and what that might look like. And it's that delivered via that, an app? Is that delivered via your cable box? Is that delivered via you know something else uh, in the future? We want to explore different ways of engaging with not only with our fan, fans, Atlético fans, but you know fans internationally, uh, people that maybe didn't know uh, uh, Atlético before, and because of our crypto initiatives, they started to know they they became uh, interested in the club and they can start you know uh, interacting with us. You know, just to give you two examples, our, our deal with Sorare. Uh, the vast majority of people that bought our player cards are people from abroad. Just to give you an example, we sold a card of Guilherme uh, uh, Arana, which is one of our player, uh, one of our players. He's playing the Olympics now, uh, and and a guy from India bought it, and he paid like more than fourteen thousand uh, euros in the card, and it, it was probably someone who didn't know Atlético before, and now they that he he owns a card of a, of one of our players not only he he, he has a collectible from from uh, atletico but also because of the cards they they the, the the performance of the players in the real world influences the performance of the card uh, this guy has now like a motive to you know be uh, be aware of what atletico is playing and, and how the team is doing because it can influence yeah. in the value of the card that this guy has so from my angle is like, from what I can hear is that for your own entrepreneurial journey and the setup of Slate and this new startup was like, it's not as much your background or your studies that matter, but rather 
the first work experience and all the pain points you've seen from the other side of the table for your future clients, actually, that you've been able to see, experience. And so when the time was more or less relevant and that these platforms came also more mature and that more efforts were coming into it, then that was the right time for you to actually make a quick decision on this. Yeah, I'd say that's right. I mean, one thing I always say is like, yeah, it's working at the NFL and for NFL teams is what prepared me to do the startup, which is kind of weird because usually you got want more entrepreneurial experience and experience in the tech world. Mm. But really everything we did in that kind of enterprise space and that brand space, you know, helped inform what we're doing now. And we have like a deep understanding of where we want to go with everything because we, we understand so well who our kind of buying persona is because we were that person. Um, and we kind of, I guess, grew up in our careers with those people. So not only has it helped us really understand the pain points and know exactly the product we want to build, it also helped us with business development and know the people to talk to and sell okay. into and how to speak their language and how to sell to these teams. So, um, yeah, it's definitely what you said, like every, and it was at the right time. And I think everything we had learned and we kind of had that good mix because, because Michael had that experience but then left to get into the startup world and then understood what it's like to start companies and work in tech and, you know, work with developers and build something from scratch. While I continued on in my NFL career and got more experience, more connections, like a deeper understanding of the social space. So I think those two things together really paired well. Um, you know, the other thing I always say is like when Michael and I first talked about the idea for Slate, you know, if I had had that idea without speaking to Michael about it, I would have never actually created it. Obviously, in the U.S., there are the four big competitions, right? That would be the NFL, the Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. We had a great talk with Chris Schlosser from the MLS of what was their positioning and how they compared uh, with the rest of the, of the big four. What is the the positioning of NASCAR? How do you live alongside those big competitions? It's obviously a much more different sport than this than soccer would be to all those other ones. Um, but we'd love to understand a little bit what's your angle uh, to capture huge communities and stay relevant to all the younger and older audiences. Yeah, it, it's a great question. There's a, there's a couple of things that I would say. One, you know, I I think the um, I, I guess the league structure in the U.S. Um, I, I suppose in, in some ways, maybe many ways we're, we're, uh, quote unquote competitors to one another, but we all have a really good relationship. I I've known Chris Schlosser for years and, and we, you know, we talk fairly regularly. Um, and I think that's the case with, with other league counterparts. Um, so I think, you know, there's, there's some, uh, you know, some degree of, of competitiveness, but I also think that, that sports fans are sports fans. And I think it's rare that, that sports fans pick one sport to follow and, and that's it. Right. I, I think there, there are generally a, a lot of crossover. There may be one that they prefer or one that's their favorite, but uh, typically what, what we found through our research is, is that there are sports fans in the U S that are following multiple leagues. So, 
you know, our, our audience is, is incredibly loyal and incredibly passionate. Uh, I think the balance that, that we spend a lot of time focusing on is, you know, you've got this loyal generational fan base that, that is, will stick with you through thick and thin. And I think we feel like we have a responsibility to manage the sport in such a way that, that you are, are still delivering on the things that are expected by that loyal fan base that's been with you from day one, while also making some, some changes periodically to, to freshen things up for, for new fans, because you've, you've, you can't, you can't pick one over the other, right? You, you don't want all mm-hmm. four fans, but you also don't want all new fans. You, you've got to, you got to figure out where the balance is. And, and I think we spend probably more time than, than most things uh, on that topic in particular. So our, our vision at Pixelop is to democratize sport. Um, what we want to do is deliver more sports content at a fraction of the cost. So we know, or I know certainly here in the UK, and it's probably replicated all across the world, is that Sky Sports, the Premier League host broadcaster here, and BT Sport, the incumbent UEFA Champions League uh, rights holder, they spend millions of pounds on producing high-end multi-camera production. Um, we're not in that market or in that space. Pixelot are very much looking at tier two, three, four, five, all the way down to grassroots sports. We want to basically unearth games that have potentially not been produced before and give the opportunity for them to have um, live production um, that they may have not have had before. So we just in terms of some quick numbers for you, Sam. So we think from our research, there's a huge underserved market. So we think there's probably around 200 million events currently not broadcasted across the world. This is sports events of various sizes. That's, we think, around 132 million in soccer and basketball alone. So we, we, we think that there, if we get the, the pricing right in comparison to the, the ROI from these events, then we think there's, there's a huge opportunity. And there is. We, we've got 18,000 systems, pixel cameras in the market currently. Um, we've produced over a million live games to date. Um, we produce around 190,000 monthly live hours. So it's, it's already a huge business. Um, and it's only been going since 2014. We spent probably the best part of a couple of years developing the, the AI which goes into the cameras. And then we really went to market there afterwards to provide these tools. Um, and that, that's interesting, right? Because, for example, you have a partnership with Barcelona. So you also look at very tier one organizations in the club sector, but it can also be used for your division eight organization. Or is there a price point where, you know, like that an eighth division club couldn't actually afford Pixelot? Yeah, so there's, it's a good question, Sam. So <clears throat> we have tools that suit different um, sectors and, and customers. So you're absolutely right. We have um, Barcelona Football Club as, as one of our key customers. And on that side, we provide um, multiple cameras that go across um, their, their football fields uh, at their HQ. So whether that be uh, in the training complex it may be across the other sports as well. So as you know, Sam, it's not just football that Barcelona Football Club do. They do field hockey and other sports. So so we have systems that help them improve performance analysis. 
do you think like it's key for like sport like triathlon or other one like I I I'm I'm thinking about tennis with with Moratoglu and his new competition at the same time like for you it, it's key like for a sport to change like a little bit like the rules on on like the, the way that they are entertaining fans to be sure that they are like attracting like a younger audience. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even think it's attracting a younger audience. I think it's just attracting an audience. Yeah, already. Yeah, yeah. I think for us, there's this mixture of like one one thing that's been very important for me is mixing sport and culture together. And other people might call culture entertainment or 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 or, or whatever. And you you see it in the you know the drive to survive and and that that in itself of of trying to engage an, a different audience in a different way around the sport um it's been good for formula one but it's also created its own challenges as well because now they've got people that are kind of interested in the people but not necessarily in the racing and it's like how are you going to join those two things together mm-hmm. um so that's a great but that's a great challenge to have right i think it's a great challenge to have and i've i kind of couldn't applaud formula one more for for kind of the approach that they've they've taken with it um i do definitely think that people in general want to know about people like the race is one part one aspect of it but most people kind of want some more depth to just what's what's in front of them and i think that's an important part that culture uh, sport needs to pl- needs to play so, you, so that's saying... part of your content strategy like to create like storytelling and like just not streaming like the live content on the race itself but more the storytelling around around the event uh, yeah around the event and then around the the athletes as well um and and again delivering some of the values of our sport you know we're very much an equal equality based sport you know the men and the women they get the same amount of airtime they get the same mm-hmm. um opportunity for prize money Um, yeah. And so I, I think it's really important that we use the platforms that we have to kind of talk about, yes, the storytelling, but also the values that, that our sport brings to, to culture. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope you enjoy it as much as we love creating them. If you like the episode, feel free to comment, rate, and share with people around you. You can visit our website, www.lastsource.io to learn more about our activities. You will discover a wide range of articles and can subscribe to our newsletter to receive the latest tech and sports news in your mailbox every month. Stay tuned for new episodes. Le Corner.